say to everyone online on the webinar, to our speakers and also to those attending and, and listening in. My name is James Van Leeren. I'm one of the steering committee members for the People's Health Movement, and I'll be moderating this discussion today. So let me start off so that we don't take too much of the time, everyone who's in attendance. I think we have 72 participants here today. The title of this webinar is Equitable COVID-19 Vaccine Procurement and the Private Sector. This is a webinar that's hosted in partnership between the People's Health Movement in South Africa, as well as the Health Justice Initiative, who are one of the primary activists in, in the specific case that will be uh, spoken to today. This, this webinar uh, has come about um, in response to the need to inform the public of the various goings on in court over the past week. This webinar is largely focusing on the issue of equitable uh, unified COVID-19 vaccine procurement and distribution plans. So as some background, for those who are not familiar, AfriForum, together with Solidarity, had lodged court papers against the Minister of Health and 16 other parties to look to allow private sector and NGO procurement and distribution of vaccines independently of uh, the government national procurement and distribution plan. In response to that, the Health Justice Initiative uh, had applied to act and intervene as amicus curiae or friends of the court in this case, and also to present expert information and expert testimony around the various consequences that such a case would have on equitable health services, particularly in light of a pandemic and the pandemic response. On the 2nd of March, it was learned that AfriForum and Solidarity had decided to withdraw the case uh, that had been lodged. However, we do still feel that this is a very important issue and there are some outstanding questions that have to be raised about the initial intent of a case such as this and the understanding of civil society and the private sector of the importance of an equitable distribution plan. So I won't waffle on for too long, but just to introduce our three speakers. The three speakers you'll hear from today are Prof. Leslie London, who is a professor and head of public health medicine at the University of Cape Town School of Public Health, and also a People's Health Movement steering committee member. We will then hear from Dr. Tling Moffel-Keng, who is the newly appointed UN Special Rapporteur on uh, the right to health. She's also a medical doctor with focus advocacy areas on universal health access, HIV care, and gender equity. And then finally, we will also be hearing from Fatima Hassan, a human rights lawyer and activist, and also the founder and head of the Health Justice Initiative. I will start off by handing over to Leslie London then, who will be speaking on the issues of access to healthcare, particularly in the times of a, of a pandemic, and the importance of equitable vaccine uh, distribution. Prof London. Uh, thanks, James. I'm going to sketch some of the public health issues out in this case. As James outlined, uh, AfriForum and Solidarity uh, made a case to, uh, to say that the private sector should be allowed to procure uh, independently and that and private practitioners should be free, able to, to freely and independently prescribe the vaccine, just like you would prescribe a, a flu vaccine or a treatment. So this raises some fundamental issues about how we think about uh, public goods. So I think it's important for us to understand that particularly in the epidemic, but certainly uh, elsewhere as well, 
we need to understand what the arguments are. So AFRI Forum and Solidarity put forward six arguments, and I'm going to go through them uh, briefly. Firstly, um, they argued that the COVID epidemic is a public health emergency that requires urgent measures to address the epidemic. Secondly, they argued that the discovery of vaccines that are effective provides the opportunity to address the health crisis, and there's an urgent need uh, to vaccinate as much of the population as speedily as possible, and I quote, in order to achieve herd immunity as soon as possible. So the third argument they said was there's a restriction on the ability of private healthcare entities to procure vaccines. Uh, and although in some places the papers got a bit mixed up between procurement and distribution, or then they referred to both procurement and distribution. Fourthly, they argued that the restriction on the ability of the private sector to procure vaccines will delay or protract the vaccine from reaching those who need it. And secondly, will prevent South Africa from attaining herd immunity as quickly as possible. Fifthly, they said that if you allow the private sector to procure vaccines, it will enable the vaccine then to reach those who need it, and then South Africa will reach herd immunity more rapidly than if the vaccine was simply based on government procurement. And then lastly, they argued that the restriction on the ability of the private sector entities to procure the vaccine is an unreasonable limitation on the human rights of the members of Solidarity, the union, and on members of various medical schemes, on practitioners in private practice and on provincial health departments, because they also argued that provinces should be allowed to procure as well as some NGOs. So those are the six arguments they put forward, and it's very important we understand why these arguments are false. So firstly, nobody would disagree that COVID is an extraordinary emergency. And, and that's why the WHO declared it a global uh, crisis, a global pandemic. Uh, but the measures that the African government has taken are consistent with what the World Health Organization uh, has said in its SAGE guidelines and others, in that they are rationally based on understanding the need for equity and access to life-saving health technologies. They are rationally based on our past experience, actually, of uncontrolled private sector procurement of scarce health technologies. So we don't have to think back very far to remember when ICU beds and ventilators were not available to public sector patients in the first wave with um, consequences for survival of patients in the public sector. Um, PCR testing in the private sector was readily available, but not in the public. Uh, and that was because there wasn't a pooling or sharing of resources. Um, so that inequality is based on real experience. And the policy of uh, the government to procure vac vaccines was consistent with all major global vaccine allocation guideline documents that were available at the time. What Solidarity was essentially proposing was to return to the scenario of the private sector paying for those who can afford it, while the public sector focuses on the vaccination of the most vulnerable members of society. So that is a departure from what is currently being proposed globally, that until everyone is safe, no one is safe. It's a return to the old apartheid uh, two-tier healthcare system where the private sector operates independently and then the state takes care of the rest with less resources to take care. And that will not work. Uh, that will end up in uh, preventable deaths uh, and inequality, huge and exacerbated inequality. In other words, the state needs to steward the entire health system to ensure a coordinated response to COVID. The second argument that they advanced was vaccines could help us reach herd immunity faster. 
So there's no doubt about that, that we need vaccines, that we need to achieve a population of herd immunity more quickly, uh, and that if we do so, we will do so with less loss of life. But there are two things about this. Firstly, the vaccine environment is very complex and there are many scientific uncertainties. We, we have very few vaccines that are actually registered in South Africa. The AstraZeneca has a Section 21 authorization, so it's not a full uh, authorization, and the J&J is licensed under trial, a research provision. Of course, that might change, but there are actually no vaccines that you can go and write a script and purchase at a pharmacy uh, in South Africa at the moment. Secondly, the producers would have to get their uh, vaccines registered through SAPRA, the South African um, Health Authority, uh, and they haven't given their dossiers uh, to SAPRA, just as they haven't given their dossiers of data to the WHO to get WHO to register. Producers have already pre-committed to selling billions of doses to rich countries, about four times as much to high-income countries as they have to COVAX. So uh, it's not coming to our pharmacy on the corner store very soon. Uh, we also, there are many scientific questions. We're not sure how long immunity lasts after you're vaccinated, nor the effectiveness of many of the vaccines against the current variants and future variants, because there will be future variants. So there's a, a great deal of scientific uncertainty. There are also logistic questions, uh, the cold chain. So while promoting uptake of vaccines will in general be a positive development, Doing so in an uncoordinated and poorly applied program may hinder our country from attaining population or herd immunity. Imagine if millions of people in the private sector are vaccinated with a vaccine that doesn't work or a vaccine that interferes with another vaccine or a vaccine that uh, has other kinds of side effects after the fact that haven't been approved. So it's, it's really a potential for a great deal of practical disaster. Uh, in addition, uh, the the Biggest problem is that you can't simply say, I want to vaccinate the most number of people and that is my success. Because along the way, you have to think about who's being vaccinated. Uh, the distributional equity is absolutely important because if you end up vaccinating people who are low risk, who would survive COVID with just a flu, uh, but the people who are high risk, who would get severely ill and potentially die, don't get vaccinated because you're vaccinating the wrong people. And it doesn't matter that you reach 70% if large numbers of preventable deaths have arisen because you've chosen to vaccinate low-risk people who can afford to pay. That is essentially the problem of this conception. Um, the proposal that anyone who wants vaccination should be able to access vaccination is therefore both unscientific, but it's also un hugely unethical and it's ineffective because we will have preventable deaths as a result. Um, if you focus on those at high risk who will benefit maximally from vaccination, that meets both the utility, the practical benefit, and the justice principle. But if you end up vaccinating people who are fit, healthy adults, who are low risk, then you're doing so at the expense of people who really need it. And promoting vaccination on the basis of first come, first served, we will fail to protect the health and the human rights uh, of uh, people in South Africa. There's also no evidence that private providers would have any better luck uh, accessing procure uh, uh, vaccines given global governance arrangements, since vaccine manufacturers are requiring governments to purchase vaccines on the basis that governments should indemnify the manufacturers against potential claims. Uh, and it's very unlikely that pr uh, private procurers will provide such indemnity 
It's only really states that can do so. So it's really implausible that manufacturers will even sell to the private sector. So the next argument about restricting the private sector from procuring vaccine. Um, the state policy is, uh, and it's true, that the state will do the procurement. Vaccines are a, pu a public good. And if you need, uh, if you want to distribute a public good fairly, it's, it's the job of government to do that. Uh, the private sector is, in fact, already supporting state procurement, supporting the state and its policy. It's not uh, clamoring to be able to procure independently. And previous experience has shown that private acquisition is a problem. Uh, we can see in the PCR data from the first and second waves, if you were in the private sector, you were about five or six times more likely to get tested. So there's no evidence that private sector um, procurement is more efficient. Uh, COVID has arrived in South Africa in a context of huge inequality, and it's exacerbated that inequality substantially. The um, CRAM study has shown that inequality has risen about six times. We've seen mortality rates in the poorer areas of Cape Town about twice that of other areas. Uh, so we are facing a crisis of inequality, uh, and, and, and privatizing procurement will exacerbate that inequality. It's true that centralized procurement doesn't guarantee equity, but it does make it possible, whereas private procurement makes equity impossible. Um, there's, of course, nothing preventing the private sector from participating in the distribution of the vaccine, uh, and you don't need to go to court to do that. Um, could the private sector procurement be compatible with promoting access and achieving herd immunity? Well, uh, the court papers were arguing that members of the union uh, should be able to access the vaccine. Well, the problem is that the members of the union, uh, if you look at labor statistics, are generally younger adults, not the right age group for high risk. Uh, workers are generally healthier than the rest of the population, so we'll have less chronic disease. There certainly will be some. Basically, workers who are high risk will be in the queue the same as everyone else to get um, uh, vaccinated in phase two or three, depending. Um, but the idea that um, the solidarity has some special uh, requirement for vaccination is completely ludicrous. Um, and in fact, um, they are wanting to preferentially access vaccine for their members in a way that will disadvantage others because we know that there is an absolute shortage uh, of vaccines uh, in the world. And that will apply at local level as well. Um, the question of whether this is a violation of the rights of uh, union members and members of uh, medical schemes. So um, it's correct that the policy will make the South African state the sole provider. Um, but vaccines are not just an ordinary commodity that you can purchase, like a, a, a typewriter or a printer. They're a global public good. And a global public good cannot be distributed through a market. Um, there's a huge divide between the public and private sector. And that is essentially what has driven the state's policy around trying to redress that divide through a national health insurance. So addressing inequity in ways that might um, limit rights is important because um, it, it has to do with promoting the rights of the most vulnerable in society and should be done in a way that is consistent with the Constitution. Um, 
and and redressing the inequalities in health by race through rurality, class, and gender is all part of our current agenda of restructuring um, the economy. So, of restructuring the health system. Um, so, there is no real um, uh, coherent argument that this is an unjustified limitation of rights because our constitution does provide in section 36 for where rights can be limited. And I think uh, Dr. Moffat-King will elaborate in more detail, but just to point out that the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights of the uh, UN uh, made a call that um, vaccine uh, uh, distribution must be equitable uh, and it's consistent with the human rights approach. It's also quite clear that many guidelines uh, internationally make it clear that uh, uh, these um, special asks by people with vested interests cannot be part of a coordinated vaccine program. And that is why it's uh, absolutely important that these kind of privatized and market-based mechanisms are, are not allowed to dictate uh, how the vaccine is distributed. It should be distributed based on public health need and on principles of equity. So I'll pause there. Thank you, Prof. London. Yes, let me hand over to Dr. Martha King, who, as I stated before, is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health and a medical doctor herself and a health activist. Dr. Martha King. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for inviting me into this important discussion today. Um, and I'm just going to go straight into it, um, you know, just to speak briefly about the right to health and human rights and why. It was important for me as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health to be a part of this case um, in my capacity as an amicus. Um, the right to health is an ex inclusive right, um, extending not only to timely and appropriate health care, but also to the underlying determinants of health, such as adequate supply of safe um, you know, nutrition and housing, as well as safe and portable water and adequate sanitation, which are very other important, um, uh, you know, uh, hallmarks of the response to the COVID vaccine, um, sorry, to the COVID-19 pandemic. But what's also more important is to talk about the right to health and some of its entitlements. And in this case, um, of course, the right to physical and mental health is quite a broad concept, but it can be broken down more specifically into entitlements such as the prevention, treatment, and control of diseases, including access to essential medicines. And we know that the COVID-19 vaccine is classified in, as, as an essential um, medicine. And there are different obligations um, of, of states. And these are set out, set out in Article 12 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. And more importantly, General Comet Number 14 defines these obligations that the state parties have to fulfill in order to implement the right to health at national level. And I think this is where it's really important because often um, when countries and such as ours in South Africa, they ratify a lot of international human rights uh, protocols um, and articles, but not really operationalize the right to health on a national level in the ways that are required. Um, and one of the obligations of the state, um, it is to respect the right to health um, and refrain from denying or limiting equal access for all persons. What's also important is that the state is obligated um, to abstain from impo imposing discriminatory practices um, as well as state policy. The other important thing, of course, is to ensure um, that they adopt legislation 
or take other measures ensuring equal access to health care and health-related services provided also by third parties. And that also they have an obligation um, to ensure that the realization of the right to health, as much as it's a progressive realization, there are some minimum core obligations that they have to meet. Um, And it makes sure that um, the state has to take deliberate, concrete and targeted steps towards the full realization of the right to health. And one of the important things is preparing a national public health strategy and a plan of action. And for us in South Africa, it's most relevant to talk about the national disaster plan um, that is currently being implemented as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's also important, um, of course, to speak about the path, right, um, to, to, to respond as a global community. And we know that human rights have to be the bedrock of all of the solutions um, that governments are coming up with. And in, in our capacity with other human rights experts at the Office of the High Commissioner, we have on many occasions emphasized that um, a global pandemic of this scale um, and human cost with no clear end in sight, requires a concerted, principled, and courageous response, and that all efforts to prevent, treat, and contain the COVID-19 pandemic must be based on a human rights uh, approach. And of course, the principles of international solidarity, cooperation, and assistance. And I think for us in South Africa, it's one thing to be ready for um, the so-called global north or the richer countries and the onslaught that they have literally meted out on the lower middle income countries and the poorer countries in terms of how they've hoarded um, vaccines. But I think we were taken aback, maybe naively, um, about the lack of national solidarity that has culminated um, into this um, court case. And one has to, you know, ask the question about decisions that were made with profitability in mind. And I think it's very important um, to reiterate that there is no room for um, nationalism, but also profit making in the time of um, the pandemic. Of course, pandemics are really a crucial example of the need for scientific international cooperation. A lot of talk has been spoken about why the science and the research and development has to be shared widely around the COVID-19 vaccine um, development and manufacturing. Um, But it's also important, you know, to talk about the fact that in South Africa, um, the private medical schemes only take care of less than 20% of the population. So even at their best, um, they were still going to fail in terms of reach and in terms of ensuring that the people who need the vaccine the most are reached first. And this, of course, would deepen the already existing structural fault lines, but also the already existing inequity in South Africa, in the health system, as well as the socioeconomic system. And so um, in my capacity as the UN um, expert, I found it um, important to, to join and support colleagues um, in, in, in this very, very important um, court case, I did join as an, as an expert, you know, to support um, and then to defend the right to health um, for all. And I just want to, you know, really just remind us all why, again, for me, it was really important. We know that the COVAX Global Vaccine Facility is something that the WHO supports. Um, and some countries in Africa have been able to procure right some of the um, doses from the COVAX facility. 
There's important technologies and the issues of intellectual property data and the know-how of COVID-19 that are yet to be shared. And so we do also pledge for voluntary license um, and, and technology access. The other important thing is, of course, South Africa and India did propose a resolution at the WTO around the TRIPS agreements. I personally support that in my expert opinion. And I do think this is a move that, um, you know, beyond the courtroom, we do need to keep vigilant in what other activities that the different states are are doing around the world, but of course also um, in in South Africa. And I think the, the other important thing that, you know, worries me, right, is that the pharmaceutical industries and private, um, uh, you know, health uh, providers and, of course, the medical aid um, schemes seem to think that they can discharge their responsibilities without um, a human uh, human rights principles. And so um, mine was also to reiterate um, the fact that even as pharmaceutical can- companies, even as private entities, um, they have to draw um, and 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 utilize um, uh, human rights due diligence um, to identify and to address adverse impacts of the right to health, as well as set and and use the documents and the principles set out in the guiding principles on business and human rights, and in particular refrain from causing or contributing to adverse impacts on the right to health by invoking, of course, intellectual property rights and prioritizing economic gains. And in our instance in this country, about furthering and deepening existing socioeconomic, racialized and gendered um, injustices in this country. I will um, stop here. Thank you very much, moderator, and just await um, if there are questions later on. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mofokin, for your input. And certainly I know that your time is very valuable and we appreciate you coming to speak today. I would now like to go on to the third speaker. So the third speaker being Fatima Hassan, the founder and head of the Health Justice Initiative. Thank you, Jane. I just want to thank Professor Leslie London and Dr. Klaleng Mofokin and Professor Saad bin Omar from Yale University, who all three of them agreed Uh, on a very time-sensitive and urgent basis to be the experts uh, in our amicus intervention. And they gave up a lot of their free time and their weekends to assist us to be able to put quite a strong body of evidence before the court, uh, for which there has not uh, actually been a response from Afri Forum in solidarity. And I just want to also thank our legal and our research team, uh, all of whom have done all of this work pro bono. So just a huge thanks, because I think this is a really important matter, and the consequences are still going to be dealt with over the next sort of 12 to 24 months. So I think the, the context of our amicus intervention is that as the Health Justice Initiative from 2020 already, we had been warning and saying to government, that you need to be aware that there's going to be global shortages, the extent of which Leslie has already explained, but also that you're going to have to require rationing because our experience with HIV AIDS and the way in which we believe the pharmaceutical industry conducts itself and behaves itself will mean that there will be massive shortages, particularly for the global south. And in order to remedy that and to address that in the middle of a public health epidemic, you need to have one plan for your country, given our apartheid past, but given also our two-tiered unequal health system. And so the context of one country, one plan uh, has been because of the way in which the pandemic has actually unfolded over the last year, our own history. 
and also the concerns around how the pharmaceutical industry would actually interact with governments and different role players in responding to this pandemic in the global south. So why did we join the case as the Health Justice Initiative as an amicus? And so we got consent to intervene as a friend of the court, but the parties, particularly AfriForum and Solidarity, did not agree to us introducing expert evidence. They actually haven't responded to it, but government actually did rely on our evidence in its papers. So the first is that we felt from the beginning of the pandemic that privilege, whether you're in the global south, global north, or whether you're in the Western Cape province, or whether you're in Gauteng, even locally in South Africa, should not be the proxy for access, both here and globally, and it's linked to the Global People's Vaccine Campaign. We were concerned that the case was trying to entrench a situation constituting vaccine apartheid in South Africa. And while we were trying to fight global battles about vaccine apartheid globally, this was basically a curveball in relation to the fact that some people in the private sector uh, who have small memberships decided that they wanted to basically run their own vaccine program. And this was at odds with what had happened with major industry players in the business sector, as well as large medical schemes like Discovery Business for South Africa, all of the businesses involved in the Solidarity Fund, where they had pledged and committed to support a national procurement strategy, but also a national allocation strategy. And so I'll come later to why I think the procurement is a red herring. And what we really need to focus on as civil society and as trade unions and as health justice activists is actually the allocation of vaccines, even if anybody was able to be uh, allowed to procure it. So I've talked about um, the fact that our evidence was not uh, you know, necessarily welcomed with open arms. And that's, you know, the usual response, I think, of applicants who bring cases without relying on any public health evidence themselves. So there's not a single public health expert that every forum in solidarity relied on to justify this particular approach of conducting their own vaccine or vaccination program. So what we don't know is which public health experts they rely on now given that they've issued a statement indicating that everybody in the private sector should now go out and procure vaccines, including medical schemes. We don't know because the media also hasn't probed this or has asked these questions of every forum in solidarity. And the press conference they gave, I think, was quite disingenuous because it focused on the legal right to procure and not necessarily what happens now. So we don't know if they're going to uh, seek to procure and allocate vaccines outside of a national strategy, which is sort of the approach that almost every country is taking around the world. Uh, there's very few countries where the private sector has actually said they want to do their own thing or want to go out in their own. Um, and really, we believe that this goes against all of the principles that have been set out by various organizations, including, uh, Leslie mentioned this already, the WHO SAGE group, the ICJ, the UN, the World Health Organization, and all, you know, uh, credible and what we would regard as professional public health practitioners and experts in South Africa. And that is that you allocate based on need. You don't allocate based on wealth or based on your employment status or based on your race or based on whether you belong to a medical scheme or not, particularly in a pandemic, because these are not normal times that would actually go against the principles of what we call prioritization based on health risk and equity in a pandemic, which explains why in most countries in the world, in fact, almost all countries in the world, you start with healthcare workers first, and then you start with people over 65 and people with comorbidities, et cetera, and then you have a different prioritization phase. 
So to cut to the heart of the case, what we're concerned about and why we continued with this webinar is that there's now a real danger because the legal room does exist for anybody if they can, and it's not practical and we'll come to that why as to why, if they are able to procure vaccines themselves directly. And again, there's four reasons why it's going to be very difficult and I'll come to that. But assuming you could overcome those obstacles, those four or five obstacles, then there's a danger of promoting unqualified vaccine selection and allocation, where unqualified means there are no terms and conditions and you select and you allocate on your own without reference to a national strategy. And that is when we believe as HAI, the South African government actually does have a constitutional duty to step in and to prevent that from taking place, because the consequences as both uh, Dr. Moffa King as well as Leslie London have set out are actually quite dire not just for health rights, but for human rights and for equity and for socioeconomic justice in our country as well. And so the issue of vaccine shortages everywhere in the global south, I think, is also at the heart of this matter, because one of the key obstacles for every forum or solidarity or anybody in the private sector or if, even, in fact, any one of the provinces being able to secure vaccine supplies bilaterally is that the vaccine manufacturers' monopolies and the enforcement of IP rights that Laleng has already spoken about actually has now created this really massive self-created global scarcity and what we call global vaccine apartheid. So you're not in a business as usual approach. You're not in a context where there's an excess supply of safe and approved effective vaccines. You're actually in a context where there's very little vaccine supply set aside for the global south and where there are supplies that are being diverted to multilateral me mechanisms that only deal with nation states or they're being diverted to countries where those companies will only deal with national governments. And obviously, they're doing this in a way where the preference is to deal with national governments so that you don't have to do the transparent pricing system. And also, you request governments, whether it's in Latin America, whether it's Brazil or South Africa, for manufacturer liability indemnity. And South Africa has just set that up, or according uh, to the minister and the president, we've set up a no-fault compensation scheme because that is what the manufacturers have asked for. And so that's a separate issue that we're going to have to challenge. And so the systemic obstacles to actually uh, being able to access sufficient supplies of vaccines for large numbers of people in the global south are actually not being acknowledged or addressed by our forum in solidarity at all in their court papers. So they don't recognize that as at February 2021, we've got a massive global vaccine shortage where, and, and a systemic allocation problem where 75% of the vaccines that have been administered in the world so far have actually gone to 10 countries and in 130 countries countries have either been zero vaccines administered or very few vaccines administered. South Africa is, is one of them. So what happened this week is that every forum in solidarity withdrew the case. We don't know, because we're an amicus and we're not a party to the matter, whether that included a settlement with government or not. We think not, but government hasn't explained this. And, and one of the issues that we need to deal with later in the Q&A session is just the lack of transparency and communication from government, particularly the Department on, of, of Health, on, on some of these really crucial matters. 
So the withdrawal has happened where everybody pays their own costs. So that means the 16 respondents that they've cited, including pharmaceutical groups, the medical association, the MAC, the different uh, chairpersons of the different MAC committees. So it was really, you know, quite a hodgepodge of respondents that they cited. Um, and, and in many cases, some of the key respondents that they should have cited were actually not cited. But we never get to that point to actually argue the case because they withdrew it. And they've withdrawn it on the basis uh, that in their view, because there's no legal prohibition on procurement, that this is they won, and therefore uh, all private players can basically go out and start procuring vaccines. And that's what they've actually encouraged all private players as well as medical schemes to go into that. And, you know, we, we'll talk about the, the reasons why that's not feasible, it's not practical, and it doesn't make any public health sense. Um, so the urging from this press conference announcing the withdrawal was to urge private players to basically undermine globally accepted public health evidence and principles, which Lang and, and Leslie have set out. And this could have a severe impact on our ability to reach widespread population immunity, which Leslie has explained. So it doesn't just have an equity and a human rights and a public health impact, but it has severe consequences for this whole project of trying to achieve widespread immunity. Secondly, some of the statements that AfriForum and Solidarity rely on, which they've taken out of the DG of Health affidavit, are actually taken out of its broader context. So if you read the entire affidavit, you'll notice that there are some key parts of that affidavit that should have been referenced. One of those key parts is that government says at this point, at this point, a law has not been passed to preclude private sector procurement and allocation. But should it come to that point, government may do that. Our own view as uh, AJI is that government should have passed this law in December already because they knew the situation we're in. And unfortunately, they too delayed. And so they've created this crisis as well of, of, of basically a situation of so much confusion. Because I think the, the main question we need to ask is even if the private sector is allowed to procure, which at the moment there is no law preventing them, then who is going to allocate and what is going to be the allocation plan? And you have to bring the allocation into a national plan. Whether you like your government or not, this is the way in which you can actually achieve uh, some of the uh, key public health principles in a pandemic. And that's the approach of all other countries. All other functioning democracies are also using that approach. So it's, it's a bit uh, confusing and it's a bit inexplicable and also indefensible that uh, some people in the private sector, not all of them, because a lot of people have come out in support of a national strategy, would actually want to uh, pursue that. The only silver lining to the possibility that there is private sector procurement and and or private sector allocation, obviously the allocation part is something which we will fight, but if a private provider wants to go and buy vaccines on its own, we, as you know, we're dealing with the current context where there's no vaccine pricing transparency. This will actually allow us to challenge the pricing of multinational vaccine manufacturers, the companies, because of the way in which the single exit price medicine um, system works. And we would be able to go to the Competition Commission to ask for the pricing data of all of these vaccine manufacturers to test the assumptions about whether these prices are low cost or, or no cost. And that is 
potentially also one of the reasons why a vaccine manufacturer is not going to sell to the private sector necessarily in South Africa, because if you do, you basically open the door to the greater ability of civil society to hold your pricing to account. So I hope I've explained that, but I can deal with that in the Q&A. Um, so our, our main argument is AJI now. Uh, so for us, the case is not over. This one part of the case is over. Two parties have withdrawn their case. But the bigger legal issue and the bigger equity issue is that you cannot have allocation and prioritization based on privilege and exclusion. And so this is something we have to step in and address. No one in South Africa, we believe, should be allocating vaccines outside of a nationally accepted strategy. And we can debate about whether we have scientific consensus on a nationally accepted strategy, and I'll come to that in, in terms of next step. So to the extent that our own government, the Department of Health, has not yet passed the DMC, the presidency, all of the different, the IMC, the MAC, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's just, there's so many different moving parts and there's so many people advising. Uh, so I just really don't understand why there isn't as yet the, the why there's so much delay in actually passing the necessary regulatory provisions to ensure that there's equitable allocation and equitable procurement. So to the extent that they don't pass any regulatory measures quite soon to ensure a single allocation system, then this is something that HAI will be taking up quite, quite soon. I just want to now link it to some of the global developments, which both Laleng and Leslie have referenced, but I just want to put it in context to why this case is important and why the issues raised in this case, even though it's been withdrawn and the next steps matter for when we talk about vaccine apartheid in South Africa and vaccine apartheid globally. The first is a set of demands that have uh, arisen from 2020, and that is linked to what we call the people's vaccine. And we now have a people's vaccine campaign in South Africa. We have one in Kenya. We have one in New Zealand. So there really is a movement growing around the world. But the key demand or the key articulation of a demand of the people's vaccine is that everyone everywhere who needs a vaccine must get a safe and effective one, not everyone everywhere who is rich must get it. Not everyone everywhere who has a private jet, not everyone everywhere who has a job, not everyone everywhere who has medical scheme uh, membership. And as you know, uh, Dr. Taleng mentioned that only about 16% of our people are actually covered by medical scheme insurance in South Africa. So that's hardly going to be a sustainable way of vaccinating everybody. The second is that it's not just about the vaccine. And Leslie talked about what happened in 2020 with PPE, with diagnostic tests, et cetera. The, the people's vaccines demands for equity is broader than just vaccine. It's all diagnostic tools and all treatments as well. And it must be free at the point of delivery. So the idea behind the people's vaccine from 2020 already was that you can't jump the queue because jumping the queue is going to actually constitute vaccine apartheid. The haves and the have nots will be then the difference in how different countries and how different local contexts actually respond to the pandemic. So just to give you some context, Leslie talked about the fact that there are limited supplies. So this is why it's not business as usual. These are the numbers that we're dealing with. So in a context where there is very little supplies for the global south because of the facts on the ground, we're not making this up. This is not about a situation where you basically, you know, arguing something from an ideological point of view alone. The number of pre-orders is quite significant. And it means that 
there's going to be very little supplies available in 2021 and 2022 for the Global South, and especially for people who are operating outside of state mechanism. So this is, for example, just a snapshot of what we're looking at. And if you look at sort of uh, the whole of Africa, which is a particular risk, it looks at the ability or the capacity of current manufacturing, uh, uh, current manufacturing agreements and deals to actually immunize the whole world. And so this is where the issue around the immediate supplies and immediate access of whatever little there is actually has to go to people who are most at risk, not necessarily to people who have the most amount of money or who can scream the loudest and get to court first. Uh, and the map on the right-hand side is just an indication of the countries that are vaccinating are the countries that are actually blocking the TRIPS waiver that uh, Tlaleng has actually spoken about. So this is just, you know, some context again about vaccine apartheid, which is one of the ironies of this case is that there is no reference from AfriForum and Solidarity around the role of drug companies. What do we need to do next, given the global context and the local context of many vested interests that are actually trying to perpetuate a system of vaccine apartheid? I think the important thing is that government has actually created this mess that we're in now. And I think the next few weeks are going to be quite critical. We have this grave danger of vaccine apartheid now being entrenched in, in South Africa. And so some major uh, systemic issues need to be addressed. If government doesn't want to pass a law in the next few weeks, then we have to compel it to because we can't have a situation where the entire private sector is basically operating like law of the jungle. We would be one of the few countries in the world to allow that. And certainly that's something that we can't support. The second is that we really need consensus on a single equitable allocation framework in plain to the extent that there isn't one. We were under the impression that there was one, that everybody... Um, is actually supportive of the prioritization framework. But to the extent that there is, uh, there isn't full support, to the extent that there isn't consensus, then government has to urgently ensure that there is such consensus and bring in, you know, all different scientific experts and advisors, as well as the private sector, including every forum and solidarity, to re-explain to people what the public health principles and imperatives require us uh, in a time of a pandemic to ensure equitable allocation. So I think, you know, getting fixated on procurement is taking us away from the most important issue, which is about you've got to do allocation within a national strategy, not outside of a national strategy. And that's what we mean when we talk about one plan for one country to achieve widespread uh, population immunity. And so I think for us, you know, I just want to end there. But yeah, I mean, let me just end off. I also think the conduct of the private sector in trying to procure their own and have their own vaccine programs in the middle of a pandemic is just uh, totally shameful. So let me end there, James. And thank you, Fatima. I would like to say thank you to the three speakers. I would now like to move on to a question and answer session. Firstly, I have prepared a question for each of the speakers, but perhaps rather to start, um, if there are questions, you may please type them into the chat or raise your hand and I will um, recognize you. Please do keep your questions very brief and not starting with a long statement so that we allow um, for a few questions. Uh, Rehad, please do go ahead. Yeah, it's just, you know, every second day I'm, I'm picking up an article and I'm seeing how these guys are expanding their supply networks and 
licensing. I see Biden stepped in with Pfizer to uh, or Johnson and Johnson to really inf- seems to be in force a partnership to ramp up supply. Moderna's announced a lot of licenses and stuff or, or partnerships with other chemical companies to produce the vaccine and so on. How does this square with the argument you're making, uh, both for Leslie and for Tima, about enforced uh, global scarcity? Uh, thank you, Rehad, for the question. I, I didn't catch if it was directed towards one of the three speakers specifically, but perhaps let's just get another question on board as well, uh, and then they can both be answered. So to Abida. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for the presentations. I just want to, um, Leslie, in his presentation, he talked about the, you know, the required indemnity that most of the, that in fact, all of these um, pharmaceutical companies is insisting from governments across the world. What does that mean for us? Um, because, you know, in my limited understanding, I do know that if they don't get that indemnity, then we won't get the vaccine. So, I mean, that is obviously a trade-off that we will have to consider or that government is accepting. But what are the implications of that indemnity? And I think then both Leslie and Fatima, um, Fatima talked about the issue about the criteria. Um, so the way, I mean, the way what our Department of Health and Government has proposed was the phase, you know, in, in terms of, the different phases and in terms of that criteria is that the um, the correct criteria for us. Uh, I mean, like, is that I don't know what the is that the the recommended or the advice the advice criteria that would help us to to attain to in the one end um, ensure that there's equity in terms of access to the vaccine, but also to attain the the immunity that we need. And then the issues around central procurement, I'm not, um, I'm in support of central procurement, but how then would we address the issues around, um, you know, the inabilities of the state, especially when it comes to issues around corruption and their continued and existing failures with regards to service delivery. We know, you know, there are always inefficiencies and problems when, I mean, even to deliver basic things like medication. If we just take into consideration public hospitals, sometimes we have situations where routine or medicine and, and things is just out of stock and people will just be turned around because um, the medication is not available. So how will those, how will we as civil society or how would we then manage those aspects in terms of the vaccine rollout? Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Abida, for that question. Perhaps we could answer the first two questions and then go on to further hands. So if, would any of the speakers like to comment on Rehad's question? I can I can go on that. So Riyad, I think the 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 problem is that uh, there's still very limited voluntary licenses for scaling up manufacturing com- capacity. Because the problem is that many of these drug companies made a lot of pre-commitments for uh, some of the pre-supplies for multiple countries. So even if Merck, Novartis, Sanofi, and one or two others are brought in at the moment. Um, you're still going to have a scarcity for at least, you know, 12 to 24 months. So you really need to ramp up as widely as possible. And that's, you know, one of the reasons motivating the TRIPS waiver. 
Um, but I mean, we could share some data and numbers of some projections being done because by the time the capacity also comes online, uh, there's still going to be a delay. So there's definitely going to be a scarcity for some time. Um, and then just in relation to the, the second question around the indemnities, uh, remember we said there were four obstacles to why the private sector would find it difficult to find supplies at the moment. The one is linked to Riyadh's question about, uh, you know, global scarcity and supplies and manufacturing agreements that are still only being put into place in February 21. Second is pricing and whether they'd be willing to pay that and whether there'd be any transparency. And the third important one, which is the reason why globally a lot of private players are not procuring directly is because of this request for a waiver from indemnity and no-fault compensation schemes. And that's certainly the case for Johnson & Johnson, which was, uh, we've been told, the holdup in securing the 9 or 20 million, or depending on which day of the week, we never know the, the true numbers. Um, and then the fourth reason, Abida, is actually that the manufacturer CEOs have themselves gone on record saying at the moment, because of uh, shortage of scarcity and because we in the middle of a pandemic with the public health declaration of uh, international emergency concern, they're only willing at this stage to deal directly with nation states. Now, we know that there are some middlemen and we know that there are some companies who are willing to deal with private players, but we are concerned that those vaccines uh, dossiers have not yet been submitted to SAPRA for approval. And in some cases, are they refusing to even submit their data. So, it's very unlikely that the private sector will also buy from somebody at three times the inflated price. But more importantly, you know, I don't think any private player in South Africa is going to buy a vaccine or procure a vaccine that's not uh, registered uh, as safe and effective by SAPRA. So I'll end there and then maybe Leslie and Plalen can add. Thank you, uh, Fatima. Leslie, would you also like to respond um, to Abida's point? Uh, so, um... I mean, the, the indemnity issue, part, part of it is we know that the production of vaccines has been incredibly accelerated. Uh, it's been accelerated in a way to make it possible to make them available. But normally, we know it takes years. And part of the process of registering a vaccine enables um, the companies to realize that what they're registering will they'll be able to quantify the amount of risk if they get sued. But because this has gone so fast, they're actually not able to do that. That's why they want the indemnity. So um, there, there are issues to do, not with the safety of the vaccine per se, but the legal implications of doing it so quickly, I think. Um, the phases into the African plan are more or less similar to most other countries. You know, some countries will have different interpretations of what an essential worker is, or they might uh, categorize uh, people who are elderly slightly differently, or you know, put uh, chronic, those with chronic disease after those who are elderly. There are very few countries that don't follow the same basic framework. And what South Africa has proposed is, is basically uh, securing the health system first through the health workers, uh, ensuring that those who are at most risk for severe disease get vaccinated first, and then everyone else in whatever uh, sequencing makes sense. Um, and uh, so I don't think there is a failing in that. Certainly the AFRI forum idea that if you belong to the Solidarity Trade Union, you should somehow be vaccinated first doesn't make any sense. You're absolutely right about central procurement, you know, because um, while it is the only way to ensure equity, it's not necessarily going to ensure us equity or a, a system free of corruption or an efficient system. And the only way to do that is to hold people accountable and through transparency. Uh, I, I, you know, it's a 
perennial problem for us in South Africa and it's up to civil society, I think, to push hard. Thank you, uh, Prof London. Um, perhaps we could go on to the next set of questions unless um, Dr. Moffat King wants to respond specifically. There are one or two questions in the chat to be asked as well, uh, but first to Elroy Paulus. Hi, uh, yes. Um, I've seen a lot of presentations about the very, very, very low one in 87,000 quoted somewhere about the anaphylactic shock that comes with very rare cases with other vaccines also. And I was wondering if that was a way in which companies want to indemnify themselves if that happens. Uh, thank you, Elroy. Um, would any of our speakers like to respond? Let's actually get the next question also from Yusuf Chikte, and then the speakers will respond. Hi, I'm, uh, thank you. I'm still unclear why um, Solidarity withdrew and what the um, agreement, if any, was with the, with the government, with the state, um, in, in, or, and, uh, and what deal was struck, if any, and the commitment of and, or, or the strength of the Department of Health and the South African government to resist an um, influence by the private sector to do a more sophisticated way of promoting an inequitable distribution of uh, the vaccine. Um, and, and a commitment from the state that this is what they want and this is what they're going to do and, and, and this is how they're going to go about it. Um, is there any uh, um, uh, 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 Views from stated views from the state on this. Thank you. Can I ask another question quickly? Uh, yes, do you go ahead, Rihad. Yeah, I mean, it it seems. I mean, we can't confirm it because there is a, a lack of transparency. But uh, you know, the lion's share certainly of our vaccine needs are being met when we look at the countries surrounding us, particularly Zimbabwe and places like that, um, that that is, will not be the case. Uh, how, how do we understand the reason why uh, South Africa seems to have got preferential treatment um, and, and not the surrounding uh, low-income countries? Or how should we understand it? Yeah. Thank you, Rehad. So we have three questions then for the speakers. Perhaps we can allocate one to each. The first from Olroy, um, the second from Yusuf Chikte on what uh, sort of resistance government will have to pressure from the private sector um, as regards independent procurement. And then the third question being that from Rehad now uh, about access in uh, other countries outside of South Africa's borders and the um, the, the, the relevant uh, issues there. Um, may I ask uh, Leslie to start um, with an answer? So, so there's no evidence that the vaccine side effects uh, are any more common than would be with any kind of medication. Some of the vac vaccines have recorded anaphylaxis as a, uh, a very rare event. Anaphylaxis is a severe allergic reaction which you can get with certain kinds of medication as well. Um, but we don't really have a long 
time period to be absolutely certain of that. But the available evidence doesn't suggest that there's any particular risk. It's just risk in general that the companies don't want to be liable for because they haven't had that time to, to develop you know, all the post-marketing surveillance, etc. So I, I don't think there's any real issue there about um, hidden uh, side effects being um, implicated. I think it's part of the normal process is just uh, because of the very rapid uh, uh, approval processes that this question of indemnification has come up. Thank you, Leslie. Um, perhaps then I could ask Fatima if you would be able to comment on Yusuf Chikte's question, which was around what sort of resistance um, government will be able to put up to pressure from the private sector um, should it uh, become more forceful, more creative to allow for uh, independent procurement outside of the national procurement and distribution plan. Yeah, and I mean, I would link uh, the provinces to that because there's certainly one province that uh, indicated quite early on that they wanted to do their own procurement because that they felt government was too slow. But I don't think they realized the global systemic issues and pressures that were, you know, being put in 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 the face of all global south governments. So I think the uh, we we can't seem to get a true sense of how much pressure and resistance there is. It was, you know, the case was only solidarity in every forum. The vaccine acquisition task team has business for South Africa as well as Discovery, one of the largest medical schemes on it. Uh, I mean, obviously, separate issues that civil society is hardly sort of included in all of these committees. So our understanding had always been that there was, uh, you know, a lot of solidarity, which is the you know, no pun intended, but there was a lot of solidarity and support uh, from big business, from major industry players, as well as all of the medical schemes. And then we saw the first sort of breakaway from that with ProfMed issuing their statement indicating that they weren't sure that their members could fund other people, that they were not uh, happy with the funding mechanism, and they had a whole range of issues and they seeking um to get input from their members. And then we saw the court case for solidarity and every forum, which in the bigger scheme of things, you know, they have a very small uh, number of people in terms of their constituency, but by going to court, uh, actually made this quite quite a serious issue. And I think the withdrawal uh, was obviously one that was quite strategic because in my own view, uh, and it's certainly the legal advice that we got, had they pursued the case, they potentially would have lost because there was so much compelling public health evidence and, and argument that it would have been really foolish to try and, and proceed with the case. And so the the disingenuous part of this, Yusuf, is that they're claiming it is a victory when, in fact, it's not because it's just not practical to, to find the supplies. But having said that, there is a danger that if government doesn't uh, clarify or pass the necessary laws, that there could be some uh, additional private sector players that, uh, that want to go that route. But so far, we haven't found evidence that it's beyond solidarity in every forum and maybe one or two uh, medical schemes. Um, and, and if somebody does try to do that, I think we would have to very urgently act to bring in the evidence to show that it would undermine public health principles. Um, just the second issue around the private sector and the myths around the private sector's ability to actually, uh, on its own, take us out of this pandemic. Uh, I think the, the problem also around um, the private sector's own version of their role in this particular pandemic is one where they believe that they are doing everything uh, in a human rights uh, 
you know, with, with the human rights lens, with an equity lens, but that's not necessarily the case. And if you look at the number of cases against private companies that were found guilty of pandemic price gouging last year by the Competition Commission, I mean, it's a case that Open Secrets and us also intervened as amicus. If you look at the lack of transparency and total unaccountability of structures like the Solidarity Fund, which PSEM and HAI have just written to the Speaker of Parliament and to the Auditor General saying, you know, you need to audit this particular structure. So we do have concerns also around the lack of transparency and corruption and the potential for price gouging if the private sector were to also procure vaccines on their own because the practice and the pattern of private sector medicine pricing in South Africa has been that you will pay an inflated price. Uh, and if people don't want to wait in the queue, then that's that's uh, what's, going to, what's going to happen. And what we're seeing um, is still anecdotal at the moment, but we're trying to you know, gather all different evidence from all different jurisdictions, is that everybody's using a national allocation strategy. Everybody, all role players support the state in trying to source supplies and then allocate it based on an equitable way within a national strategy. Uh, because there is a recognition that if you are on your own, if you're a private provider that's trying to compete with the state for supplies, you will reduce the amount of supplies that's available for the national pool. And the and, and the concerning thing, and I think it links to Rehart's point, is that if you allow the private sector in South Africa to do that, you're going to reduce the potential pool of supplies available for the region. And so this, it's not just about trying to protect the allocation within South Africa. It's also trying to protect the supply pipeline for the whole region, um, which is, you know, one of the ways in which to mitigate that is the AU uh, vaccine acquisition task team and sort of what COVAX is doing in terms of providing some supplies uh, for parts of Africa, but certainly it's not enough. And if, if our private sector is going to have free reign and is able to just, you know, buy up vaccines and do what it needs to do, then you're not even going to have regional immunity. And I think that is why the AU has issued a, an equitable allocation framework and is so concerned about how we are going to make sure that there's uh, public health principles are observed also within the region. I, I don't know if Plaleng wants to add on that in relation to Africa as well. Uh, thank you, Fatima. It seems though Plaleng has unfortunately gone off the line. We've uh, messaged her to get her back on. I agree it would be great to ask her that question specifically. Um, but we'll have to move on to other questions for the moment. Yusuf, is this a, a new Sorry, uh, James, uh, Dale has just WhatsApp to say that uh, he can't get back into the meeting, but the question is the same as the what he put in the chat box. Thanks. Okay, thanks. I will read that out once I found it. Um, okay, thank you. So the question from Dale McKinney is for HJI and PHM. Given the withdrawal of AfriForum Solidarity Court case and the general approach adopted by the main medical aid outfits and corporate um, capital to work such cooperate with government, where does that leave things in respect to the threat of privatization of vaccine distribution and allocation? So I, I'll respond, but I think Fatima's already addressed that. I, I think in a way we are no different, but there is a threat and the threat is looming there. And if we don't do something about it, it might come back in a different way. And uh, we know, for instance, that the, the, the lot of people talking about the mining industry has been like really important for our economy, and, and so uh, they should get some kind of special arrangement. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, at the moment, it's not there, but I wouldn't be surprised if that sort of lobby gets a bit stronger. Um, I do want to just comment about one of the earlier questions about the rest of Africa uh, and South Africa's role. 
So I think what we saw, you know, in December, uh, South Africa was just talking about, the president was talking about uh, COVAX, and then suddenly in January, February, it's, you know, all these bilateral deals. And essentially what South Africa has done <coughs> has been um, to secure, you know, the needs of South Africans in South Africa, or, and that's another question, what about um, migrants? Um, but uh, the rest of uh, countries in Africa have largely been left to either the African Union or COVAX. And we know that COVAX is not coping. Uh, it's received like a, what, a 20% of what the high-income countries have bought. So, and, and it will only cover up to 20% of the population uh, in, in low-income countries. Middle-income countries don't get any special deal from COVAX. So um, it's not surprising that South Africa went to bilateral deals. But I think it is a real issue for us. We do have to think regionally, and we do have to think about how we can um, uh, address this in a in a more coherent way. Uh, particularly because of our, you know, cross-border uh, movements and and many migrants living in South Africa, and we can't expect uh, to keep variants away if we only vaccinate South African citizens. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. Yeah, I mean, James, if I could just add and emphasize what Leslie said. The that COVAX is, COVAX is facing a, a significant supply bottleneck, right? Uh, in addition to that, it's it's based on a voluntary cooperation of, of some of these drug companies, not all of them have actually joined COVAX. Um, and that's one of the issues that's happening globally right now is putting more pressure on COVAX and Gavi, the vaccine alliance, to actually uh, be more explicit about the fact that we're facing such a crisis if you're going to continue with this business as usual approach. And so the, the forecast that they release and the projections that uh, has been um, you know, disclose shows that they're only likely to cover 27% of vulnerable populations in low-income countries by the end of 2021. And so while there's some attempt, as Riyad mentions, to actually try and um, increase the number of sub-licenses to manufacture some of these vaccines, it's certainly not enough to even take that to potentially even 50% by the end of the year. So, so there's a real, you know, I can't stress enough, there's a real global supply shortage and crisis. Even the countries that had pre-ordered their vaccines are not getting their supplies on time. Um, and so the, the issue around transparency of the sub-licensing arrangements and these agreements with, uh, with Merck and Sanofi and Novartis is that even with those agreements, where they're signing um, to scale up manufacturing. In some cases, they're still segmenting markets. In some cases, those supplies may not be for all parts of the world. And in some cases, even those uh, sub-licensing arrangements are preferring the countries that made the initial orders. You know, so it's such, there's so many moving parts um, and there's such a, a shifting of goalposts that uh, we mustn't be fooled into thinking that, you know, three or four voluntary licenses is actually going to sort out the world's uh, global supply crisis of, of vaccines in the, in the next year, at least. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Fatima, for that response. We don't have any remaining hands. There is a, uh, a couple of questions in the chat. Um, they do branch outside of the, the main topic of discussion of this conversation to more questions around the general vaccination strategy. Um, for example, a question, some CSWs, are their contracts ending in March? Do these frontliners, uh, are they considered as frontliners during vaccination, um, considering that the Department of Health is currently vaccinating frontliners? And then another question um, uh, for a general comment on 
the government's decision not to use the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, would either of the speakers like to comment on, on either of those points? I mean, it seems to me if you're a health worker, you're a health worker and you should be treated as such. It's likely that community health workers will come back into, into service at any point later. Uh, and it's foolish to actually uh, say that, well, you were a health worker when we uh, didn't have vaccine. Uh, you didn't have a contract uh, when we had vaccines and now you're just uh, at risk. So I, I think community health workers should be treated as health workers, whether the contracts are short or long term because they are a resource uh, for the health system. Um, I'm not quite sure what the AstraZeneca uh, question was. Basically, um, the, the vaccine for uh, effectiveness for our variant was not very good at uh, preventing infection. It might well prevent severe infection. Uh, there's a lot of scientific uncertainty. And basically, government made a call, uh, not everyone agrees with it, to switch away from the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, and I still, Fatima might know better what we're planning to do with it as South Africa if we're not using it. Um, surely this should not be wasted. Yeah, no, I agree. Mm. Uh, so there was also a question. There was also a question about global public goods, and I'll just you know say that my understanding: global public goods are things you 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 need that where everyone benefits, whether you're rich or poor, uh, high income country, low income country, uh, and so it's in everyone's interest that these uh, public goods are effectively distributed and available. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I understood the question. James, uh, you know, uh, just to add what Leslie said around definition of public good, one of the key demands is that a public good recognizes that there's no intellectual property protections and enforcements during the time of the pandemic. Um, and so that's also primarily why the waiver is being sought, but also why our government, if it wants to treat the vaccine as a public good, then needs to take the necessary compulsory and legal measures. And one of those measures should not be allowing non-disclosure agreements. One should be encouraging pricing transparency, manufacturing scale up, and then also not acting so powerless to just agree to a no-fault compensation scheme where you provide all kinds of uh, indemnity liability, which actually the public funds because we're paying for it. Um, the second point I just wanted to make around the question uh, related to community healthcare workers who obviously must be regarded as frontline healthcare workers for the purposes of the Johnson & Johnson song case study. So I think that if you are working in that space, it may be useful to find out from the trial uh, sponsors of Sisonke, whether community healthcare workers are included, what's the trial protocol, what was the ethics approval in relation to community healthcare workers, and how the protocol, if it doesn't include them, then needs to be amended to include them. But I think the the worker question is that's going to be the next battle in South Africa. There is already contestation around who will be defined as an essential worker for the phase two. And that's why we've been saying, you know, ringing the bell around scientific and public health consensus around the allocation framework. So the tourism industry is saying their workers should be regarded as priority to essential healthcare workers, mine workers, their security guards as domestic workers. So there's going to be a massive contestation when you're dealing with limited supplies. And so the moral and ethical and public health, and then obviously the legal question is going to be, how do you allocate that and again, it can't be the workers that have big legal teams that can go to court to try and get a court order for them to be declared, uh, you know, as, as priority to uh, workers when, when we know there's going to be limited supplies. And then just 
On the AstraZeneca, I mean, I'm not a clinician, so I can't give you any view about, you know, its efficacy or not. But what that points to, I think, is the point that we've been making around transparency. If government doesn't communicate properly through the Ministerial Advisory Committee on vaccines or the Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVAX, then we have a problem because None of us have seen, for example, the communiques or the advisory or the scientific consensus on what you do with that particular batch of AstraZeneca vaccine. So you have different scientists and clinicians publicly articulating a different view about the same vaccine and what government should do with it. The latest that, uh, information that we have is that they were... Uh, in one week, we're going to use it as part of a study for 100,000 workers. Then in the following week, they were going to sell it to the AU. And then in the following week, they were going to donate it to the AU. So none of us actually know the true status quo of what's going to happen to those vaccines. Uh, it's already the 4th of March. There's a potential, um, you know, first expiry date because of the way in which data works around April. Uh, so something definitely has to be done with the vaccines and there's different views. And so the issue of the composition of the Ministerial Advisory Committee for Civil Society, I think in this context is important. We've seen what happens when you don't have scientific consensus and you don't bring everybody into the room with HIV AIDS. And this current iteration where some people are outside of the MAC, some people are inside, the MAC is not very transparent. The advisories are still not public on the AstraZeneca decision. Uh, that is a huge problem. And I think that's what's also creating a lot of this confusion and uncertainty. And and it's playing scientists off against each other. And that, I think, is really dangerous as well. Thanks, James. Thank you very much, uh, Fatima, for, for that. We are coming to the end of our time allocated for this webinar. So I would like um, to make sure that, that we have time to thank the, the speakers, um, one of whom I don't think we still have on the, on the line. But thanks to Professor Leslie London from People's Health Movement and UCT School of Public Health, as well as to uh, Dr. Teleng Mokakeng, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health, and to Fatima Hassan, uh, the head of the uh, Health Justice Initiative, who had um, appealed to intervene in this case. Um, I would like to give a last minute to each of the speakers to wrap up on two two simple thoughts um one being what did the the court case um highlight in terms of uh, misunderstandings by groups such as afriforum and solidarity uh, around vaccine equity and the second question being given that the uh the case has now been withdrawn what are the things we should be watching for um, in, in, the, in the weeks to come that we should still keep an eye on um, uh, and be aware about. So first to Prof. London and then to uh, Fatima. The, the thing that strikes me most about this case is how we pay lip service to this idea that we're all in this together. Uh, you know, when the epidemic broke, there was a lot of, uh, you know, um, patriotic uh, support people felt really strong you know people were helping each other in uh, townships but i think we're kind of now seeing the the, the the inequality of our society coming home to roost because this is really like pushing myself to the front of the queue kind of behavior and i think it does show how much more work we have to do if we really want to build a society based on social solidarity uh what do we have to look out for well um i think if 
civil society is able to keep tabs on all these committees uh, and these decisions made behind closed doors, uh, that's where uh, the sort of uh, private sector interest will be promoted. And the next thing we'll wake up with a headline saying something that we didn't want. So I think it's really incumbent on us to be as um, vigilant as possible. Thank you, Leslie. Fatima? I think for me it was the fact that our government is still thinking that everybody's going to offer solidarity and be supportive. And so what were they doing for a whole year in not making sure the regulatory framework was in place to ensure that there could be a single allocation system for the entire country, which is based on public health prioritization. So that really makes me angry and enrages me because their inaction and inability, and they were warned about this. We've been, in, you know, sending letters to them since sort of late last year. And, and uh, you know, we haven't even received a proper answer from them about that. But we warned them that this would happen because we, we know that this is what happens in a pandemic. Not everybody is, you know, going to commit to public health equity because there's a lot of self-interest and, and often it's based on race and often it's based on wealth. Um, so that, I think, was really frustrating. But uh, what was important was the affidavit signed by the DG of Health and Professor Slim Abdul-Karim. If you haven't read it, I would urge you to read it. It's on the website. We've made it public. Uh, it's on Power Singh's website, who are our pro bono legal lawyers, and all the affidavits are there, including Leslie's affidavit, Laleng's, you know, HAIs. But read the affidavits of Slim and uh, the DG, and it shows that government is really bad at communicating a lot has been happening behind the scenes and they're not sharing that information. Significantly, there are letters of intent signed with a handful of companies. So it really seems our vaccine selection, which we haven't, you know, we've got potential deals, but we haven't made the vaccine selection based on science and evidence and uh, SARPA approval and registration is Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, Pfizer. And interestingly, um, or a little bit of AstraZeneca, but mostly Pfizer, Jensen and Johnson. Um, they, Novavax seems to be off the table, but significantly in the affidavits, they say we're still having conversations with Moderna. And I think the Moderna is some, you know, NIH Moderna vaccine is something to watch. It's something we've all been watching for a while. And so that's, a, that's a quite an interesting, uh, admission. Um, and then the final reflection, James, is that, you know, not every case, you know, we, we have a constitutional democracy and you all have the right to go to court. But you don't have to go to court in every single thing. Like Leslie said, there was no need to go to court in this particular case. But having said that, it shows that even though people may want to be able to do something, the global realities and the systemic issues means that it's not practical. So there's a 50% chance this could happen. There's a 50% chance it couldn't happen. But I think we have to prepare for the worst case scenario because what it's shown us and what the pandemic price gouging showed us in 2020 is that not everybody's in this together in the same way and not everybody's concerned about the most vulnerable people in our country like uh, you know one would hope that we are thank you thank you uh, very much Fatima so again thank you to all of the attendees that we had I mean over a hundred people we reached our capacity and there were people uh, coming and going um, so I think it was well attended and very appreciated that the Three speakers made time to present to the public in this way. Um, uh, thank you again to both of you who are here and also to Dr. Mokkeng in her absence. <laughs>